afternoon from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, breast implants and moving tropics. In addition, we'll be joined by Ms. Jennifer Ackerman. She will discuss body rhythms. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokkatron 5000. And the real famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. Frank Grox, I'm Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Peppy as ever. You know, you're the peppiest guy I know. Do you take pep pills? No, it's just salt and pepper. You're the Dr. Pepper. So, Charles, what's the best thing about breast implants? That I don't have them? In fact, that's a very wise answer. Is that right? Yes. In a recent edition of the Archives of Surgery, breast surgery patients at the Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis from their records show that those that have had reconstructive surgery using implants were twice as likely to acquire infections as who just had regular breast reconstruction. And these are for people who had a mastectomy. So is it just because the foreign material might be attracting more pathogenic organisms? Yes. In fact, it gives us plenty of surface area for bacteria and other nasty things to grow. Uh-huh. The other alternative is for these patients is they would take abdominal tissue, fatty tissue, and use that to reconstruct the breasts. But that also has some drawbacks. A lot of these people develop blood clots and lung embolisms. Mm-hmm. And in fact, 2% of patients have to have them removed. Really. Right, right. You know, it's unfortunate that people do get breast cancer and uh, there's always drawbacks to all these surgeries. Right, right. Well, the study was led by Dr. Keith Brandt, who's a professor of plastic and reconstructive surgery at the uh, Washington University. All right, well, here's for those people who might be heading down to the tropics. It's warm there, right? <laughs> it's, in fact, tropical and growing. So it turns out that uh, the tropics may actually be expanding by about two degrees north-south. As a result of global warming trends? That's what they suggest, is that global warming is causing the expansion of the uh, tropics to these other regions. I see. So this is actually a work that was led by climate scientist Diane Seidel of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, trying to compare a lot of models of changes in the tropics to these models. And they actually show that the two-degree expansion that has been predicted by most models is much smaller than what's actually observed. It's actually about a four to five degree expansion. Some of the latest findings have shown that their predictions are underestimating many other factors, including, for example, how fast the ice sheets in Greenland are melting. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the rate at which we're pumping up CO2, the greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, is actually faster than we had predicted as well. So a lot of indicators seem to be disturbing. So it certainly suggests that the models, though alarming, perhaps might only be underestimating the extent in which uh, global warming is changing the climate. So this is very fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of Nature Geoscience. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Ms. Jennifer Ackerman will join us to discuss body rhythms. So stay tuned. Welcome back. 
Rock's Science Show. Well, the human body is a remarkably intricate system. The numerous physiological operations required to maintain its proper functioning are at times as regular as clockwork. Well, many clocks, in fact. Joining us today to discuss the physiology of the human body is Ms. Jennifer Ackerman. Ms. Ackerman is the noted author of Notes from the Shore and Chance in the House of Fate, whose work has also appeared in numerous publications, such as the National Geographic and the New York Times, among others. Her new book, Sex, Sleep, Eat, Drink, Dream, A Day in the Life of Your Body, looks at the remarkable clockwork processes going on in our body. Ms. Ackerman, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure, and I think this is really an intriguing look at the processes that are going on in the human body. I'm curious, how did you actually uh, come up with the idea for this book? Well, I came up with the idea because it was actually a, a case of the flu I had some time ago. And while I was recovering from that flu, I realized that I really didn't have a clue what went on in my body, either in sickness or in health and that it might be a good idea to get to know it a little. And my first idea was actually medical school, and I got smart about that in part because of my own body clock. Uh, Doctors need to be able to operate without a whole lot of sleep, and I'm not like that. So I had a feeling I wasn't cut from that cloth. Anyway, I came around to understanding that I really wanted to write about the body as a kind of everyman and share what I learned. And how did you wind up uh, tracking down all the pieces of information that are in this book? Well, I did a great deal of research. I researched partly by interviewing scientists, and also I read an inordinate number of journals, scientific journals on medicine and and physiology. Um, And I also submitted my own body to some experiments and learned a, a little bit about what makes things tick. What were some of the more interesting uh, experiments that you subjected yourself to? Well, uh, one of them was an experiment looking at the energetics of walking and running, just uh, uh, whether we're more efficient when we walk or when we run. And I actually went to Harvard for this experiment and got wired up with muscle and silver balls that they attached to my joints. And what they were doing was videotaping me in, in basically in three dimensions while I ran on the treadmill and mapping the location of my limb parts. And so this was part of an experiment looking at the energetics of humans compared with the energetics of chimps and who was more energetically efficient in a bipedal mode. It was really a wonderful experiment to participate in because I got to work with a very entertaining and lively chimp named Jack, and we actually got to race each other on a treadmill. So that was was great fun. Did you beat him? (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's a lot faster than me on four legs, let's put it that way. But energetically, it was more efficient to be on two feet. (laughs) I'm I'm curious, so this is a very interesting structure that you have for the book, where you actually um, progress through the different parts of the day, starting from early morning to late evening. Why did you choose this particular structure? Yes, well, I had at first envisioned organizing the book around topics, but I quickly changed my mind when I really discovered just how powerful the 24-hour rhythm is for our bodies, the circadian rhythm that we have. It um, affects everything from our heart rate and our blood flow in the brain to alertness and physical agility. So the 24-hour rhythm seemed to me a very powerful force in our lives that people didn't know very much about. And also the familiar framework of a day seemed like a good way to make this really fascinating material engaging and accessible to readers. It's interesting, uh, one of the features you mentioned in the book is that there are sort of the night owl types and uh, more of the early birds, and a lot of that's uh, genetically determined. Does this 24-hour cycle that you have in the book apply to both? (laughs) 
Well, I actually discuss the differences, and I do use myself in the book as an example because I'm, I know my own body better than anybody else's, and I'm a lark very clearly on the extreme end of the scale. Incidentally, if people are interested in finding out whether they are larks or owls or where they fall on the scale, there's a link at my website, which is www.jenniferackerman.net. And if you go to the title of my book there, there's a link to a website at Columbia University that has a self-test to determine where you fall on the lark owl scale. And also, if you're not happy about where you are, how you can shift your body clock a little bit. As you said, our rhythms are shaped by small variations in the genes that run our body clocks, but they're also affected by our age and our daily exposure to light. I see. And so uh, if we change any one of those elements, can we change our, our cycle? Yes. If you expose yourself to morning light, it can advance your clock more toward larkishness. And if you expose yourself to evening light, you can delay it. Most people veer toward owlishness, and in fact, we may have more owls in our society because of our exposure to nighttime artificial light, which does delay our body clocks. And I think if you're a real owl, you suffer more in our 9 to 5 society than larks do because it runs counter to your sleep-wake pattern. And what happens in our body when we're waking and throughout the progress of the day until we go to sleep? Well, there are fluctuations in all kinds of body functions. As I mentioned, there's heart rate and blood flow are some of them, but even levels of stress hormones and sex hormones fluctuate, and even the workings of the individual cells in our liver, our lungs, and our blood, they are all running on 24-hour cycles. So that, as I said, a very powerful influence on our body, and one of the key factors that varies is body temperature, and we start in the very early morning, we have a very low body temperature, and it rises over the course of the day, and this affects a whole range of functions. One of the things that I learned that was very interesting was that most people think that best time of day to exercise would be first thing in the morning when they're very fresh, but... If you want to actually maximize your athletic performance, if you want to run your fastest race or swim your speediest freestyle, the best time to attempt your event is actually in the late afternoon or evening. As I said, that's when your body temperature is highest and your muscles are most powerful, your joints are flexible, and it's also when you breathe easiest and your heart is pumping most efficiently. Another factor that may want tip you toward a, toward a light workout is that the perception of your own exertion is lowest late in the day, so your workout doesn't feel so difficult. Uh, one of the interesting facts that you put in the book is that the colors that you might see might in fact not be quite the same color that you see. We do have individual differences in the way that we see color. Hmm. The red you see in your morning strawberries may not in fact be the red that other people see. We have individual variations in the genes that code for our visual proteins, the photopigments that allow us to see color. And so that likely gives each of us a, a really unique view of color. And one of the very new pieces of research I found interesting showed that some number of women may actually have genes for a whole different class of red photopigments. So they may be able to see subtle color distinctions that the rest of us really aren't aware of. Is there anything in particular that we're better at in the morning than we are maybe later in the afternoon or in the evening? Well, yes. It depends on whether you're a lark or an owl, but larks generally function better on cognitive kinds of things in the morning. 
concentration and the ability to solve complex problems and to reason things out logically it tends to peak between around 10 and in the morning and 12 for morning types. Evening types often experience their mental peak in the afternoon. But there are a lot of factors apart from circadian rhythms that play into mental performance, what you ate for breakfast, how much sleep you got the night before, and that sort of thing. But there is a, a circadian factor at play. Interesting. So what happens in midday and afternoon? What happens to our bodies at that point in time? Uh, well, midday, early afternoon, usually sometime between 1 and 3, the body experiences a real dip in the day, and this is what I call the doldrums, and it's when the, that fog of sleepiness kind of drifts into cloud your thinking, and you function about as well as if you had a couple of beers. And the reason you feel drowsy in the early afternoon is not because of that big lunch you ate. It's Although some foods can exacerbate sleepiness, it, the body experiences a natural dip in, in alertness in the afternoon whether or not you've eaten lunch. Now, we can either fight that urge with, say, a trip to Starbucks or a brisk walk, or you can give into it and try to catch a few winks. And I really heartily endorse the, the nap route. There's a whole slew of new studies that suggest that naps boost alertness and mood and also your productivity in the, in the later hours of the day. In fact, the word siesta derives from the, the Latin word for sixth hour, which is the middle of the day. <laughs> How easy do you think it would be for people to find a little place to take a cat nap? Well, the whole culture of napping is changing, and I think there are actually some businesses that are encouraging it. The research is pretty indisputable. It, it definitely boosts productivity, so the Japanese are kind of at the cutting edge of this. And some of the Japanese companies are actually building nap time into the workday and encouraging their workers to take 15, 20 minutes and just rest. Truly an enlightened society. <laughs> right. I'm curious, so, uh, you know, you've made it through the day, made it through the afternoon. What, what happens in the late evening? Well, late evening, one of the things that, early evening, actually, one of the things that happens is that we tend to have a cocktail. And that may be because we're cranky <laughs> and we, we need to relax. But interestingly, the time of day that we choose to have our cocktail is also the time when our bodies best tolerate alcohol. The time of day affects how quickly alcohol is metabolized, and it also affects its impact on our faculties and our, our organs as well. So, heaven forbid, if you should have a shot of vodka early in the day, it's going to be more intoxicating than the same shot of vodka at twilight. And this has to do in part with the daily fluctuation in enzymes, and also, again, back to body temperature, alcohol and other drugs as well that are taken in the late afternoon or evening are in general more rapidly processed by the body because these higher body temperatures speed the chemical reactions that the body uses to de detoxify foreign substances. Does this apply to uh, what we eat as well? Is it metabolized a little more quickly? Yeah, that's a, actually an area of research, but it's not clear that, in fact, <laughs> the research on eating suggests that if you're concerned about losing weight, the better time to eat is early in the morning, that people actually who take in more of their calories at breakfast consume fewer calories overall during the day than people who eat their big meals later in the day. So this may have to do with circadian rhythms and our satiety mechanisms. At night, our satiety stoplight <laughs> dims, so we don't really know when to stop noshing. We just, you know, late night dinner and snacks. The research suggests that, that people who have lost a lot of weight and kept it off for long periods of time, uh, something like 78% of them are breakfast eaters. And if you want to gain weight, the best thing to do is eat at night and to eat in front of the TV. <laughs> <laughs> 
Because the brain really can't monitor intake, and so you just keep eating, ignoring the brain signals that are saying, really, stop, I'm full now. Right. I, I don't think uh, gaining weight is going to be a problem for most people. So. No, right, that's true. Most of us have the opposite problem. But So I would heartily recommend eating a good breakfast, a uh, good whole grain breakfast, and it, it really does make a difference in what you consume overall. Hmm. That's a, a good piece of advice there. Um, all right, so you've made it through most of the day. You're ready for sleep. Uh, what happens then? Well, sleep is really a kind of holy grail for scientists. We're still struggling to figure out why we sleep and we know a fair amount now about what happens when we don't get it and it's really an important issue because i think we're facing an epidemic of sleep deprivation in this country Uh, most of us get six six and a half hours of sleep and most of us need more than that we need seven or seven and a half hours i think most of us are getting about an hour less sleep than we need and the problem is that the loss is cumulative and so we're all walking around just a little bit sleep deprived and with too little sleep people just think and move more slowly they make more mistakes and they have difficulty remembering things so there's a big impact on on our brain and our cognitive functions but the body also suffers sleep deprivation suppresses our immune response and it slows the healing of wounds and it also reduces our supply of leptin which is a, a hormone that signals satiety when we've eaten enough so when we don't sleep we feel hungrier and we feel hungrier especially for calorie rich carbohydrates like cake or bread and the body treats the loss of sleep like a deficit of calories that it wants to make up so it steps up your appetite and it slows down your metabolism and all of this is really a recipe for weight gain so some scientists suspect that that the epidemic of obesity we're experiencing now is actually tied to to an epidemic of sleep deprivation is it, is it possible to, you know, as most people try and do, catch up on sleep on the weekends? Not really. There, you know, you can try to get some, some longer hours during weekends, but there really is no such thing as catch it into your daily schedule. Hmm. Some of the interesting features of sleep that you talk about is that you might actually even be able to solve time in your sleep. Yes, that's interesting to me because i uh, the kind of person that I wake up two or three minutes before my alarm clock rings whenever it's set, even if it's at a really ungodly early hour. And it turns out that, at least for some of us, there is this internal alarm, and the brain is keeping track of time in our sleep. And what it does is it boosts the blood concentration of stress hormones that get us up and going. And it's really an amazing feat when you think about it. It probably exceeds our ability to tell time during our waking hours. Uh, However, I will say it doesn't work for everybody. (laughs) Um, and finally, I guess I'm curious uh, a little bit about dreams and in particular nightmares. You mentioned that women might have more nightmares than men. Yeah, um, this is research out of Canada that suggests that women have more nightmares than men. And the uh, researcher there studied about a thousand university students and he found that women reported about two nightmares a month and men only had one and a half, which is not much of a difference, but it, it's there. It's statistically significant. And researchers speculate that it may be related to hormonal fluctuations or possibly it could be the upshot of women having more trauma or depression. One of the thoughts about the function of nightmares is that it's a a way of detoxifying and ridding the brain of fearful memories. Uh, I'm curious, you know, after having researched all of these different physiological functions that go on in the body during the course of the day, what uh, is your sort of perspective on how the body's operating and do you have a new appreciation for the complexity of it all? 
I really do. For one thing, I'm far more conscious of my body's cycles, you know, the ups and downs of temperature and stress hormones and alertness and how those things affect the way I operate. So I'm more attuned to the importance of timing in my daily activities, you know, from when I eat my biggest meal to when I take my medications or when I schedule important meetings. And I think I'm also more respectful of my body's needs. The body needs plenty of natural light every day to align your circadian clock with the seasonal shifts in day length. So I try to get out every day. I try to exercise in the out of doors. And above all, I think I have a newfound respect for the body's need for sleep. We live in a world where people brag about how little sleep they need. So how many of us know what it feels like to be truly rested and awake? And I can agree. Then uh, do you have any final words for people interested in their bodies and maybe uh, a final word, I guess, regarding your book here? Yes, well, I think many of us think of ourselves as cerebral creatures, you know, driven by what's going on in our brains. But more often than not, we're also driven by what's going on south of our brains. And we just, just aren't aware of it. And I think sometimes your body is smarter than you are. And it almost never lies. So the, the idea of this book is to get to know your body a little bit to help you learn how to listen to its signals and pay attention to its rhythms. So it's really a book for anyone who's curious about the hidden mysteries of their body and the idea is really to understand it a little better and, and benefit from that. Well, the book is called Sex, Sleep, Eat, Drink, Dream, A Day in the Life of Your Body. Ms. Ackerman, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you so much. And you were just listening to Ms. Jennifer Ackerman discussing body rhythms. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. When it feels like the world is on your shoulders And all of the madness has got you going crazy It's time to get out, step out into the street Where all of the action is right there the Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, parts of the body. So, for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, if they were a part of the body, what part of the body would they be? Ms. Ackerman, are you ready to play the game? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Person number one, what part of the body would he be? Al Gore. Oh, I would say Al Gore is the vigilant eye. He is the one who has opened our eyes to, to global warming. <laughs> Hopefully we're all paying attention, though. <laughs> right. Uh, okay, number two is famed former quarterback O.J. Simpson. Oh, do I have to say? <laughs> <laughs> passing is a viable option on any of these. So. I'm passing on O.J. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Moving quickly on, number three, uh, the famed anatomist Dr. Henry Gray. Oh, ooh, Dr. Henry Gray, I think, oh, he would be the skeleton with all the bones inside and neatly mapped and all in order. And keeping everything together, huh? Right. <laughs> all right. Uh, number four, the famed starlet Britney Spears. Oh, let's see. Britney Spears would be, now I don't mean to hover around the eye, but I think she'd have to be the lash. <laughs> <laughs> Mere adornment, huh? <laughs> right. 
<laughs> All right. Number five, finally, is the uh, President of the United States, George Bush. Oh, here's another one I'm going to have a tough time answering. Um, <laughs> something below the neck, I would say. <laughs> Uh, anything but anything above the neck. <laughs> right. That's, that's it. I'm afraid so. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Ms. Ackerman, I do want to thank you. Stick around playing our game, uh, the Rockathon 5000. And, of course, talking about your book, Sex, Sleep, Eat, Drink, Dream, A Day in the Life of Your Body. Thank you again. Thank you. Now here's this week's question of the week. What is ultracentrifugation? Yeah, so, well, thank you very much for asking me the question, uh, Sir Frank. Uh, it's very interesting, the ultracentrifugation. Have you ever been spun down? Just in the merry-go-round. Yeah, well, that is almost exactly what this thing is. You're spinning stuff down, and that kid, he comes off that merry-go-round very fast, yeah? Yeah, and he also times travels into the past, right? So you can actually measure the particles and uh, looking how fast these things fly through the ultracentrifugation. That's the ultra-analytical ultracentrifugation. Very powerful uh, techniques there. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.